Yeah, welcome again, um, the Mike Oldfield Discography Podcast. Tenth um, anniversary of Jubilee Bells, the release of Crises. It's a really um, special album to me because it's the very first album I bought with my own money uh, at age age ten. Uh, I was waiting for it to be released. I knew when the re mm -hmm. release date was. I somehow had read about that or like seen ads in the in the record store and i remember um going there there were like big di displays of the the tower uh, you know the tower with the uh, vinyl record and i i got it i bought it yeah that was um that was something that something really special and musically you already mentioned that um you know like this 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 format of you know instrumental track on one side and songs or you know or something else on the other um god already started with five months out now in crisis we have sort of like the next step of that where there's less instrumental music on the b-side and yeah i mean like for me it's i'm i'm so i'm so close with this record um i'd rather have you start with it or maybe even you know like when did you discover it? That's a good question. I, I I believe this was one of the very first I got from the music library in The Hague when I started um, borrowing CDs. Um, so this must have been one of the very first. Um, I do remember that I thought I loved this instantly. Um, and and um, and it's looking back now, I'm 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 fascinated by the fact that I loved it instantly because it's as much as it was a commercial success, and it was a huge commercial success, um, I think I am intrigued more and more by the album. And I think the second side, it, does, it doesn't have this, it's not a pure pop album as you would expect it if you only knew Moonlight Shadow. I think you'd be surprised if you only knew that song going into it. Um, yes, it is an album which has this format, one big piece, mostly instrumental, not entirely instrumental actually, on the on the A side and then shorter songs on the B side. At the same time I feel like the, the B side, these pieces could work as instrumentals, many of them. Hmm. I know that um, Moonlight Shadow, that was actually, that came originally from an instrumental jam the band had in the studio. That's what um, he says at least. The which, first which version. One? Moonlight Shadow. Ah, no, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, the crises. I, I, as far as I know, the the basic tracks were recorded live in the studio, but yeah. it wasn't a jam. Okay, maybe the wording is wrong, but yeah. um, it was it came from playing together in the studio. Yes, and it was instrumental at first, and then um, he tried to make it work as a as a song. And okay, you don't hear it anymore, but um, I mean, for example, a piece like in high places. You mentioned this in the previous podcast. Um, about five miles out, that was already played earlier live. Yes. And I know the Gothenburg version of that, and it's essentially the same piece. I mean, that is, and it works. It, I mean, yeah, Maggie Riley is singing on it. Yeah. But um, it's hard to make out the vocals on the recording. I know, and um, the, the chorus melody is different. It's slightly different, yeah. but, but it's, the, 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 the verse and the, the instrumental, but the, the instrumental track is the same. Yes. And um, yeah. And I think that many of these pieces. I think would work as instrumentals. He could have arranged it entirely differently, made it an instrumental. And that is what makes it so intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. um, 
It's, I mean, we just, um, before we, we started, we, we came here from having just a short coffee break. And um, I think, to me, this is maybe his most accomplished studio recording. I just, I, I am, there's different um, philosophies to what a recording should be. I know, for example, my friend Jeffrey Roden, the composer, mm. he loves um, for an album, for, for musicians to come into the studio, maybe take, put down one or two takes and that's it. Mm -hmm. So he really loves the, 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 the idea of a studio recording being just a slightly more um, perfect, like a more perfect idea of the live recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, um, I like, I like belabored processes um, where, where the artist spends a long time in the studio to get everything. Like, I like artifice. I, I don't mind it. I like it. Um, and I think this album is so, so, it sounds so incredible. It's so, such a, um, a sultry, sensual recording and the integration of the acoustic and the, and the electronic elements. Um, so what I take from it is, I think this is his, his, his hands down, his best, most accomplished studio recording. I, I, I love everything about it. It's almost to the point where I find it hard to say anything meaningful about it because I get lost in the music. Mm. Just yeah. um, the, the beauty, the... Um, the dynamic quality of it um, and the sensuality. I think it's a really, like pieces like um, Foreign Affair and In High Places, um, they could, for any, like with most artists, this would be kitsch. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, it's just gorgeous. Just, just yeah. really. Yeah. Like, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, you know, as a, you know, as a musician or as an artist, um, one of the most important insights I had is that music is music is about the vibe. Mm -hmm. So it's not it's not really like I can talk about like the 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 background of the composition and blah blah forever. But it doesn't like if it doesn't have the vibe, yeah. it just doesn't make it. You know, it's about the vibe, and this record has a vibe like you know. Yeah, like you know, and especially tracks like Foreign Affair, mm. which is such a such a bold statement with just the the drum groove and then like like there's no guitar on it. There is um, there's bass guitar on it, which funnily enough in the in the credits here on the in the re-release edition, um, yeah. this like this this hasn't been done with lots of care. Like there are so many mistakes in this, so. We don't really, uh, we can't trust this one's written down here. But anyway, um, like the fact that that he was kind of like trying to move away from what he was known for is just wonderful. And Foreign Affair is just a magical little track with the, with the, with the magical mood. Yeah, just, I mean, there's, um, what is the lyric? Um, this The word cool comes in there, right? And Maggie Riley, she sings like her voice is like icicles, beautiful icicles that melt and uh, it melts me. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a most incredible studio um, voice, mm -hmm. vocal performance. Yeah. And it's entrancing also because um, it keeps repeating at the end and repeating. And it's, I don't know, it is, as you say, it's, it's really a mood piece. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's what, what kind of this, this record is. If you think about it, like all the pieces are just kind of like mood pieces. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Exactly. And even something like Shadow of the Wall, something that yep. a lot of people don't like, I think it's it's kind of very powerful and cool and reduced and and so yeah. Yes, I I was I was surprised how many people don't like it, but um mm. I suppose I don't know how familiar you are with Twin Peaks, but you know, in the first scene, the, the, the pilot of that has a scene at pretty much at the beginning where the mother is call, gets the call that her daughter has died. And many people laughed at that scene because they thought it was so over the top that it was comical. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference between playing for laughs or playing it so in a way that it, it becomes it can become comical, but there's a huge difference. And I think this piece is over the top and also the singing is over the top, but it needs it. Yeah. And I think it, um, I'm glad he went for um, for this performance because it's it's just one outburst of energy. And the guitars are mirror that and it's um, there's no there's no irony in it at all. And that's what makes it great, I think. Yeah, and and you know, like it's the uh, Simon Phillips influence here as well. Like um, this was the record where yeah. Mike asked Simon Phillips to co-produce it with him, and um, I think I, I mentioned that you know a few podcasts ago that Simon Phillips really is maybe at that time like the most futuristic sounding drummer with mm -hmm. like even though he comes from the 70s and he was already successfully drumming in the 70s with a sound that is just so modern mm -hmm. contemporary not modern <laughs> contemporary at the time um and really really um the kind of groove and sort of like uh, yeah groove is not actually so like these songs they don't have the traditional beat to them right like where it's more yeah. like, and I, how should I say this? It's sort of like already kind of foreshadowing the development where drummers later on in the 90s, they learn to play like a drum machine. And in a way, Simon Phillips here is already playing a little bit like a drum machine yeah. that like the, um, it's more like a percussive percussion arrangement than just a beat. Yeah. And very still very simple and and minimal and clear like, groovy right um there are actually online threads in forums where people seriously ask mm. is it just the lindrum or is there a drummer on there and i think mm. that's not to the i don't think that's um intended to be negative about the way the uh, percussion channel it just means he plays it borderline at the border between that those two yes the human and the machine and that's yes. incredible actually yeah, and it it sounds it sounds so rich at the same time, right? It's it's not it's not a you couldn't get that with a drum machine, mm. this kind of sound. Um, but really, like it was the time of the um, of the gated reverb and stuff, you know. And you hear some of that on on Crisis on the track, yeah. Right, but um, so it's it it has this the sound of its time. Also, it's the the um, Quantic Room Simulator, which is yeah. the the uh, the reverb, I was going to say plugin. <laughs> the the reverb, uh, you know, device they used for that this record that gives it that expensive quality. Oh, it was expensive actually. And, and expensive. <laughs> oh, expensive. Yeah, it actually so, cost twenty five thousand marks. I was I read. Um, okay, which was insane. Yes, yes, yes. But it's a also it has the 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 Neve computer aided mixing console on it, like where things would. 
like would would uh, Mike would kind of like experiment more and more with that with yeah. then uh, you know albums like Islands and and mm. even or maybe even Sounds of Distant Earth, like where the automation is sort of like part of the of the composition mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, it kind of starts here a little bit where yeah. where like Five Miles Out has like one one and a half feet in uh, in the olden days. Yeah, this one is sort of like both feet in modern technology somehow and like there's only there's only um what like <laughs> you know started recording crisis in 19 in november 82 and so it's like it's and finished in april 83 it's it's quite something right? and it's just such a different vibe and i think Simon phillips got a lot to do with it probably and we don't really know what he was what he was allowed to contribute Hmm. Again, this is the the and I use this term loosely allowed, you know, because no, it's just yeah. like like the dynamic between people. You don't really know who does what and and who has a say and um and and yeah, like you know um, also like realizing like this is something that that I learned later. Uh, actually, pretty well, not not so much later, but when the the so-called uh, maxi singles in Germany were released of. Um, Shadow on the yeah. Wall and uh, Moonlight Shadow, you realize that the versions on the album are actually shortened versions of the original versions. It's not that the extended versions were extended from the originals, it was the other way around. So Shadow on the Wall had a whole other section. Moonlight Shadow had an additional... Uh, additional verse even, right? And uh, the intro is much longer. Yeah. And the, the album version only you know yeah. starts uh after the original intro and yeah. stuff like that right? and these these additional um like 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 offbeat melodies he's playing in the extended version of moonlight shadow mm -hmm. it's really it's really really nice um so so like so you can see that somehow this format of the the shorter pieces on one side is really something that i don't want to say that it it's and it certainly wasn't an afterthought. No. But in, in technical terms, in order to make this fit on a vinyl record on two sides, the songs had to be shortened. Yep. Pretty short. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? Like, if you think about it, right? So, so. Yes. To the, I think to the advantage of pretty much everything on there. There's in, in high places, the end of in high places sounds like it it, it did go on, mm -hmm. and I sometimes wish for it to go on. But there is a certain beauty in in the fact that some of this it leaves it more floating. The whole everything floats um, into the next piece. Yeah. Um, even though it's like stylistically, this is so diverse. It is. I mean. Moonlight Shadow and Foreign Affair, the two pieces with Maggie Riley, they're so different. Yeah. Um, and still, he makes it work. That is quite remarkable. Yeah, and um, In High Places is really uh, kind of like, again, rhythmically an interesting piece because mm -hmm. it has it has the like shaving off, shaving off uh, beats at the end of the bar kind mm -hmm. of effect where there is where there is like a Basically, basically a four-four, but then the four-four turns into a seven-eight, and sometimes yeah. into a six-eight, and you get like these different ways that it rolls around. Let's say, yeah. um, and then ending with the with with 
what sounds like something that's kind of trapped in a uh, in a delay, yeah. but it's played. It's like a seven eight loop at the end, and it's it's kind of cool. It's kind of progressive, and I don't know how how much um, you know that also influenced his idea to get uh, John Anderson involved. You know, you know, I, um, I have to, I have the key. I have the quote about how they. Um, how they met, which is really interesting. I, I hope I brought it. There was a really good um, piece on um, on the um, on the recording of Crises. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't think that read that. But I, should, so I, I can't find it right now. But the, um, the the thing is that he met John Anderson when Anderson was with Vangelis. Yes, and put him together, and then they were. Um, um, they were working on some stuff, and um, so that that was um, how that contact um, came about. I don't think he sorted he sought him out um, um, from like intrinsic, like, like some idea he had. He, he met, and then they started talking. Mm -hmm. But he picked the right piece for him. I think it's um, there's. Um, I saw versions of it by, with Brian Palmer, where Brian Palmer sings this um, live. Very. Uh, Barry Palmer, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, he doesn't have the range, unfortunately. He does make a good performance, I think, but it's so, yeah. such a different... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. It's perfect, perfect for John Anderson. Like, because originally it was Maggie Riley singing it, so yeah. you had to have somebody with, with such a high voice and that kind of um, angelic <laughs> thing, you know? And, and really, the... Um, I don't know, like who's credited for for the vocals, but I think it's probably uh, my Goldfield, right? For the lyrics, for for the lyrics of "In High Places." I because I think it's John Anderson for the lyrics because the music is obviously entirely Mike. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, okay, because um, it says here lyrics Mike Oldfield and John Anderson in my my disky version. Yeah, so but but the um, like I'm because I'm thinking of the live version yeah. that I heard on the '82 tour, and there was. There, there were lyrics, and now I remember how Mike introduced it. He said, "Now it's a song about little people or something." Yes, exactly. Elves, right? elves or something, and um, people live <laughs> under the ground. I can't remember. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you're right. Those weren't the real lyrics. And then, yeah, okay. Like in high places, like this, this, this reference to being high, and you know, like the, uh, which was the letter. Used by Kanye West. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In a different yes. context. Yes, but the you know the uh, but anyway, like this this reference to um, sort of like some sort of drug hmm. uh, experience. That's also something that's pretty new hmm. uh, or unique, like to this record that there is actually right. It's funny. I never I never actually uh, made that connection because it also uses the word navigated. To guide us, I always assumed it was, had something to do with flight. Um, now you mention it. Navigated to heaven, yeah, but it's pretty. Something, yeah. It's pretty, um, pretty obvious, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And that was the, that you know those were the years of um, yeah of where like like you almost have to say everybody obviously wasn't everybody was uh, doing cocaine and and marijuana and like I. I, I I wasn't there, and I wouldn't have liked to be there. I guess, <laughs> even. Um, but I, I made two longish uh, interviews with Ant Glenn, who was playing mm -hmm. guitars on on this record, and 
and he alluded to that quite often in the in the conversation that yeah. there was a lot of drugs around so that's why maybe maybe that's what in high places is about but like that going back to like the idea that it's sort of a so sort of a progress rock song simple miniature um having Sam Phillips played the drums again makes all the difference because the version before that I heard before was very um simplistic and there was no real drum part but now with, with Simon's drumming it's like the, that is a real part yeah so like you it's it, it's part of the music you can take it if you take it away it just is not the same thing yeah um and I guess it's sort of like a um, double double kick drum kind of thing that he's using there as well to have like the mm. the pulsing going on um and to have also like have the combination of Simon Phillips and Pierre Milan playing together like yeah. Pierre playing in the vibraphone and again like this is something I remember of that the um like jumping a little bit like both the in high places and foreign affair, riffs that we hear that are played by mm -hmm. synthesizers or by the Fairlight or whatever yeah. they they are origi originally I think they're guitar guitar patterns because in the live versions you can hear Mike playing those and then you realize ah it's not it's not really something that um, sounds like something you would need to um, transcribe for guitar but it's something that just lies like a natural thing on guitar that would be interesting because as a Former key player, I, I I always found found in high places had a very interesting rift. It doesn't really sound like it was developed by someone thinking from the keys. It, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And again, it's like it's the um, the hammering motion between like a root note and some top yeah. notes, like the tuba bells theme. Yeah. That's what it is. And like, okay, like this is something that we absolutely need to mention. And now we're already quite a few minutes into the. But this is the first time that he kind of like pretty boldly makes a new version of Tubular Bells because that's what, what the track Crisis is. It's yeah. like a variation on the theme, on the theme and the themes of, uh, of Tubular Bells. And funnily enough, like, like remember when we were talking about Five Months Out saying that it was such a happy thing, right? Like yeah. now here the, he takes the Tubular Bells theme and turns it into a major yeah. and it's not minor anymore. And it's, it's quite fascinating. And also mixing things up with, um, with Omadon. Also Crisis, the finale of Crisis is sort of a reference to, um, to Omadon, like the, the fast strummed, uh, acoustic guitars. Yeah. Uh, you know, like very much the same, and the tempo also. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't really checked, but it feels like it's very similar the tempo. So, yes, we can go. I, I wanted to one maybe one thing because structurally, because Tom mentioned um, one long piece and on one side and the short on the others. What do you make of the um, reversal of that in the North American edition? Because in North America and the Canada, obviously they had um, the, the shorter pieces on the A side and they also included one more piece. Mistake. Mistake. Yes, I, I think for me that doesn't make any sense. I no. think it's I think it's it's a bastardization, mm. as they say. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, I don't. I don't count that as something proper. It's not. It's not what the artist intended. 
No, I agree, and I, I also don't like Mistake particularly all that much. I like the song as a standalone song, but it has nothing to do with this record. Mm. Um, it's it's a it's a Mike Oldfield group song that mm. they did maybe like when they were doing Family Man, right? And it's it's a cool little tune, but it, and where where Mike was playing bass, right? Like yeah. that was that was his role in the Mike Oldfield group. Mike was the bass player. Mm -hmm. And you know, and and Rick Fenn and Tim Rennick, like who are playing guitar. Oh. So anyway, like it is interesting to me in a way that they were all surprised that um, Moonlight Shadow would was was uh, turned into a hit. Mm -hmm. I think that is that would still take from it because if you if you put out that the, you put out the record with a twenty minute piece on on the A side, and you put a song which will later go on to be the biggest hit in Europe of that year mm -hmm. on the B side and actually in the, on the North American version they put another song in front of it mm -hmm. so that means they had no clue how big this was going to be no one yeah. had any yeah idea. but it wasn't big in your in the US at all it wasn't big in the US yes no. yes so maybe but they yet, did get that yeah yeah I mean like I have I have a kind of love-hate relationship with with Moonlight Shadow I mean like for me it's 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 difficult to say hate because it I always thought it you know I, I didn't really get it but I do I do, and it's so incredibly powerful, and 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 gives me goosebumps these days. This song, where I was like always, you know, not for for me. What I loved about it was that Mike headed it. I love that that he managed to do something that gave that opened new doors for him, and and I thought that was so cool. Like that's that's what I like in people who are. Who are creative and like forward thinking and like changing and trying to new do new things like if they actually have success with that concept mm. <laughs> right because it's such a rare thing especially these mm. days right and and so uh, i liked it for that and i like the i like the extended version which as we know was probably the original mm -hmm. um you know like um i wasn't aware that um you already said that they, you know, Moonlight Shadow was recorded live. The backing tracks were recorded live in the studio, and uh, Phil Spaulding is playing bass, and it's a fretless bass. Hmm. On, um, I think, up to this point on Mike's records, there has not been a fretless bass. I think this is the first time it makes an appearance. And I may be wrong, yeah. but but like, <laughs> but I like these little these little nuggets, like where we see, ah, okay, wow, and then realizing like the um, the 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 re-recording of Tubular Bells, the re-recording two thousand three, yes. right, which is cool, actually uses fretless bass guitar instead yeah. of the yeah. and that is so so cool i like that as well yeah and and just 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 this you know anyway anyway um it is definitely i, I it's a weird song and it's weird for it to become such a hit the production when i listen to the production i think the production is completely different than all of the other ones uh all the other songs and it starts i think what's really curious is it starts off very naked Mm -hmm. It's a very naked beginning, and then when the fairlight comes in, it suddenly gets all the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you have the acoustic guitar strumming, which is um, mm -hmm. really naked again, mm -hmm. uh, but it's very on top. Um, and then it, it Did, didn't didn't he say in the uh, autobiography that um, that was the original idea that started the song was to play the play the acoustic guitar very hard. 
I don't think it's in the, uh, but, but we might have said it. I think, I think it is in there. Okay. Like where, where I said, like the original idea was just, he had only the idea, he wanted to write a song and he wanted to play the acoustic guitar mm. very hard. And that's how the diddling yeah. kind of thing happened. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't want to. No, I, I, you, and, like, um, and I, I hear, for example, um, the case went in Maggie Riley's enunciation, you know, she said, um, carried away. The case, they just, they're really, it's, I don't know, it's a mistake to me. Um, but this, but it all gives the, the song so much character. So what, I mean, what do you mean? Uh, carried away. It's c carried away. Yeah. I mean, I would correct that as a producer. I would not leave that in. It's it's very. It's almost like the like the P, but she does it with a case almost uh, everywhere in the um, in the song. Mm -hmm. um, so t I think the the description of the process was sort of taking it word by word almost, mm -hmm. and it sounds that way almost like it's still in the finished version. Um, it doesn't seem organic, but mm -hmm. it, this this is a song with there's so much I remember it by. I think that's what makes it interesting for me. It's 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 not. It doesn't sound like a, like like a move into a commercial direction because it's so it's willful. It's different. It's um, yes. I, I mean, like the um, this the, this is also like the album where he first brings out the the stratocaster mm -hmm. and plays it as like finds a new sound for himself yeah like um yeah it really is like and he said he said that he was inspired by mark knopfler actually hmm. so like the solo here in uh, hmm. moonlight shadow is sort of like a mark knopfler reference Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Like so, like it for me. It took took a while also to understand that basically the solo, the, which is a written solo, repeats twice. Once it's played with a clean mm -hmm. sound on the strat, and then it's played again with a distorted sound. Like so, first is more of a chordal approach, and then it's like just a single note approach with distortion. And like for me to really realize it's exactly the same melody, they took a while because like the mm -hmm. way that it stacks, let's say, yeah. in, in in the um, in the composition, in the flow of the composition, is like okay, this is a new part, but it's wonderful. I also, if you look at the lyrics, um, it reads almost like a like a, like a folk song because mm -hmm. it has this structure, a line, and then um, carried away by a moonlight shadow, then another line carried away by a moonlight shadow, which seems very folky to me. Mm -hmm. um, but then, but then it doesn't go on like that. So it juxtaposes different ways of working with with words, which is. Um, also, again, um, creative, really creative. Yeah, and the, the, I mean, I'm sure that this is in the autobiography where he says that he got the rhyming dictionaries and like sitting down and trying to write this. <laughs> I, I, I just, I have my, like, it's really, I doubt that he wrote this alone. I, I remember the stories that he said he, he went, he took a lot of, they took some wine and he took a rhyme, took a rhyming dictionary and, and penned it down. The day, the night before Maggie Riley came to the studio, I just, it's so different from all the other lyrics he's written. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not impossible. I just, um, I just wonder. Also, the fact that he says it's not about um, John Lennon's murder, and it seems, I don't know, it seems pretty obviously to be about it. I mean, there's um, all these, the, the non, over, like the, 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 the slight variations in, in the facts, they, to me, that makes it even more about it. Hey, so, what do you think about that that uh, extra verse in the extended version? Isn't that just about um, him being in a crowd? Um, doesn't yeah. that just explain the one hundred and five? Um, yeah, maybe. Do we have it? In, do we have it in front of us somewhere? No, no, I, no, I don't have it here. Yeah.
I only like remember that because it's a different grammatical construction, right? The last time ever she had seen him, I think, is the. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's isn't it? I mean, for me, like back in the day, the song didn't have any meaning. Like it wasn't. It was only, like only, in a way, I felt like he just put some random elements that he knew were gonna kind of like work and put them together. Yes. Like just just like yeah. like like even like Moonlight Shadow is ridiculous. Like even just the title, right? I've in a way. Do you know yeah. where I, I I have I'm almost on the same page with you, but I did like it, and I think the moment in the song where I start really liking is where it's this echo effect on her voice when she says, "I, um, I think I, I watch, I watch, I watch the end." Yeah. Because that is again it did, like there's no no echo anywhere before, and there's no. After yeah, that, yeah. and it somehow takes the song. This is a constant between something that's very real, and then it goes into this dreamlike state. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think it was. I always, I was taken by this switching, and then the end obviously soars, and I like. I, I know, I, I, I like that, but I, but I agree. It's um, sort of a grab back. It's, it's really. It's it's sort of like the the lyric. Uh, is sort of, um, and I like that about it. Like you say, it's kind of obvious, right? What it's about, but for me, it's, it's it has that um, almost like a again, like a John Anderson lyric, <laughs> like where it's just uh, you know, like there's a lot of room to interpret yes. it, but there's there's really no meaning behind it. Yeah, and and in a way, to me, it's like um, like phrases put together that sort of make a create an atmosphere. Like what I was saying, like like it's mood pieces, and in a way, the lyrics are mood pieces as well. Especially, especially um, for an affair too, for me. Yeah, it's like this mood piece, and then shadow on the wall as well. Mm -hmm. Right, like even, even though that is more that is more um, obviously descriptive, let's say, right, and and yeah, I mean moonlight shadow and shadow on the wall. So what is it about shadows on this record? Well, yeah, the the cover. Right, the watcher on the tower. Yes, and the 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 shadow of the tower. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, but it's cool. As you can see, it's a concept. It's the album has a concept, right? Like the cover ties in with with yes. the lyric of of the crisis track. Um, you have the shadow. You have the moon. I saw iterations of the um, of that painting. There were actually. Um, Earlier versions where it where it's more populated, which is also I mm -hmm, think um, mm -hmm. gives a hint to as you call it a mood piece. The, the, the earlier version had more people in there. So if you um, look at this pier, like where he's watching from the from from far, there's, um, to his to his side, there were more originally more people. So now it's mm -hmm. I think he moved it more into the night, mm -hmm. um, into into solitude, and which I think reflects more this 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 sort of um, in between. Feeling of in betweenness. What's the time um, in, in Mulai Channel? 4 a.m.? 4 a.m. 4 a.m. is actually um, in Ayurveda, and um, that, that's a meaningful time because mm -hmm. it's in between the, exactly the, the, the turning point. Yes. And it's the time when your body starts awakening. Even mm -hmm. if you get up much later, that's the moment when um, yes. body temperature is at its lowest, and uh, many people wake up naturally. I remember ma people making fun of it that it says 4 a.m. in the morning, <laughs> which uh, 
but I always understood it as 4 a.m. comma in the morning. That's how I heard it. There's lots of commas in that. Uh, yeah, anyway. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then even then, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But it's sort of like it's like it's like, and maybe you're right with that. Like it's 4 a.m. in the morning, so like it's mm. it's important, right? That's it's yeah. It, it, this yes, you're repeating that information to to say, okay, this is this is important, and we don't know why. <laughs> but but it's kind of funny that. Um, you see that this what that's what makes this record so special. Like now we're getting um, the songwriting aspect mm -hmm. to be also about some sort of lyrical contribution that uh, Mike and maybe others made. Yeah, and I think that's that's uh, that's a unique thing. And like, okay, what are the lyrics on um, on this, on side one on cry in the track Crisis, mm. right? Like the watcher and the tower waiting hour by hour, and like the the other parts, I don't remember now what he's saying there. And then crisis, crisis, you can't get away. Right, that's that's it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered maybe one thing oh, about you, Moonlight Shadow is that, of course, when I don't know if are these early versions, they, we, there's no record of those, right? The the ones he recorded earlier. There was one with Hazel O'Connor. Um, I don't know if there actually was one, that, but there was talk of doing they, one. She was in the studio, actually. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So they did, they did do something together. I didn't, but, was, but isn't it, it, I heard that it was actually not necessarily that song, it was the other song, Man in the Rain. Yes. That later. Yes, it so, was. But I, I understood it to be a different version of the same song. I mean, I don't, just, I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know for sure. Okay, I'm just I'm, the thing I'm wondering about is because we've talked about his choice of collaborators for his ideas uh, in the previous podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really wondering sometimes what, um, why he picked people. It, it must like Maggie Riley. He knew Maggie Riley and had worked with her before, mm -hmm. and um, he, he he describes that she started at the beginning of belting it out, mm -hmm. um, but then he knew what she was like and what her preferences were. And Hazel O'Connor, I mean, she has a very distinct voice, which is very different from Maggie O'Reilly. So I really wonder the choice, what he what he was looking for. It's really curious. Um, I can see, I mean, her performance in Foreign Affair is incredible. Yeah. And she just holds back. But this one is really, something's different here on, on Moonlight Shadow. It's, um, I wonder why he picked what he was, what, why he picked her for this piece? I don't know if you've yeah, any ideas. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I guess he was. I don't know. It, let's just, let's just, you know, after the fact, we can say it's she was perfect for it. After the fact, it's absolutely <laughs> clear. Yeah. Do you think that? I mean, do you think he picks collaborators because he wants what they do in their other projects in his music, or do you think it's more of a that there's a personal there's there's an approach that is similar and then let's see what happens if he comes or she comes into my studio and world that's a good question i i think i think knowing mike through his music that probably he wants a little bit of both mm -hmm. you know like like what, what i was saying um you know about guitarists there's something that he likes yeah. You know, like Anne Glynn, which I think was was a great or is a great like uh, rhythm and blues 
uh, guitarist but from with a British background yeah um, and Mike liked that and wanted some of that on this record and then you know got him involved and with Maggie Riley had already known for what mm. at this time like five years almost right so so there is there is um there's a history both the history and also uh, like we were talking about Morris Pert mm. like you bring somebody like that into the studio who's a composer Yes. that you can expect more than just a player yeah and and i think um here with with the singers um it's maybe just about like like finding something that gels because as you know like when you're creative you're starting out and like maybe you have some sort of vision but it's very rare that you have a totally formed picture or image like for this and um if you take massive attack for example where one of the 90s poster boy projects for working with external yes. vocalists. So if they, when they work with uh, Elizabeth Frazier, it sounds like the Cocteau Twins, but then in the world of Massive Attack, or if they work with Sinead O'Connor, her voice is her voice, and then it's somehow in a new context um, on the album. Um, Sharon Nelson, et cetera, et cetera. But, but with Maggie Riley, he's, he's going for the exact opposite. He's putting her in, in the most uncomfortable place if she coming from a soul and 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 sort of yeah. almost disco funk background, he's putting in a place where she everything she but, but she's also Scottish and she has lots of folklore background because mm. of that. I mean, I I don't find it that uh, that shocking. But you're right. Like if we're thinking like the choice of John Anderson, right? He does how much. How much does he really sound like John Anderson on this track on mm. In High Places? He does. But still, like when, when I peep, uh, play this track to people that don't know it and then people who know John Anderson, they're kind of like, at first, they're, is that John Anderson? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is John Anderson. So there's something. And again, I think it's like this idea of the moon piece, mm. right? So maybe that's what we're kind of like talking about here, that the vocal melody, the vocal sound yeah. um, is is part of that mood yeah and that's sort of like what i i guess in the end um an artist who wants to create art that has is impactful is going is going to go for in a way because you mentioned the painting is sort of there's a very close relationship between the painting and and the, and the lyrics mm -hmm. but the lyrics don't explicitly tell a story it's, yes. it's sentences which yeah. open it's like a haiku almost you know it's not a, not not in its form but it opens up a resonance space where the words get take on a, a poetic meaning. Yes, and resonance space, you know, because I think that the color, this yes. green, these tones of green, um, very much remind like the sound of the synthesizers on Crisis, the Oberheim, and with a with a with a Prontec room simulator mm -hmm. reverb. That's sort of like the color, the feeling of that of those sounds Absolutely. is that color. I would thought, me. yeah, totally to me too. It's, isn't that amazing? That it's, is weird, yeah. And it's it's yeah, it's weird. So I'm I'm wondering if it's like if it's really the graphic that created also that sonic image. Yes. Somehow. I don't know. It's by the way, I when we were talking about the cover, um I, I just remembered that one of my probably our um favorite bands, Tangerine Dream, actually for a very long time had um I think it was the sun on their covers, on every single cover they had from a certain time on, there was yeah. a a small sun in the cover, so this is sort of um, so the, the, uh, just a circle. Um, this one is sort of the, the counterpoint to that. It's also um, um, 
it's a moon, but 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 it's um, similar. That's the same shape. Dominates dominates the, the 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 front cover. And actually, it's that what is kind of special about the tower to me is that one there's light in one window. Oh yes, I never yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, like this this record, like we've talked about it, like mostly, let's say, superficially at this point, uh, not so much about the music itself, and I think that's that's really what is special about this record, that it kind of is something that was more mainstream in that regard, that you wouldn't, you didn't have to have an appreciation of the music before mm -hmm. you could appreciate it. Yes. Right, because that's that's usually what happens with with people that make great art is that you have to come also from a perspective mm -hmm. of wanting to experience art, and somehow this, with this record, he managed to mm -hmm. go to open up in a way that others were invited. Yes, and if you think about it, it's really only the track Moonlight Shadow that does that, uh, that did that commercially. Mm -hmm. Right, so but then this record was was huge, right? I mean, I don't know uh, anything about the sales numbers, but it was certainly his biggest hit. Moonlight Shadow sold a million copies, and I think the album sold somewhere around five or six. Mm, wow! I have to look it up. Two Bells Two was sold less, and it sold two million, so it has to be in excess of two million. Yes, yes, okay, yeah, pretty incredible. I think for yes, and, the, and adding to the mood um, idea is. We mentioned the room simulator, mm -hmm. um, which is um, which was attractive because it, it uses a completely different um, uh, concept in technology yeah. of, yeah. of yeah. Um, creating digital room. Yeah, um, and it, as I mentioned, it cost seventy five thousand mark at the time. I don't know what that translates to in, in dollars yeah. um, at that time. Oh, expensive, really, really expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but he and and he used it and it. You hear it on the very first seconds of the of, of crises. Yes. So it, I think, there was to I think for him to to create this album with the idea of um, a vibe. That's why he bought it. Yeah, exactly. He, he makes it very exactly. clear at the very beginning. You hear the space that he has in his mind, and you come enter the space, and then the music unfolds in the space. That's why the opening is so um, you, you know, know withheld. Yes, and you know the opening and the closing parts are yeah. so amazing. Um, like I said, like Taurus Two ends with that scissor sound with the backwards uh, delay, and then here now we get not only do we get an ending to the epic piece, we get an intro actually, mm -hmm. and so and he like and you will you will like this. So and we know that like after the intro we get the major version of the Tubular Bells theme, yeah. right? So. Tubular Bells does not have an intro before the intro, before the first section. Yeah. But Tubular Bells 2 does. Two, yeah. Right? And so in a way, I see this really, this mm. this as this album as sort of like the the modification of the concept of Tubular Bells, where there's something happening before it goes to that. Right? Yes. And isn't that isn't that great? Yeah. Like you know. And and then um, the, the track crisis going through um, different um, little pieces that are like more or less developed, right? Um, 
most of them are sort of like like a rock band playing in the studio kind of vibe really like the first half yeah and and then uh, the second half uh, op- like where the space opens up and everything goes like um mostly synthesized yeah. with uh, with acoustic drums right where yeah. the acoustic drums take the lead part um for like riffs with where the drum is not playing grooves but riffs you could mm-hmm. say and then there is the the huge uh, drum solo uh, in the middle and now here's like here's something that uh, I don't know if you're aware of in uh, 1984 I think so a year after David Bedford released his or like released I don't know like um, there was the premiere of the his symphony number no. one his first symphony you showed me and, one, and, yeah. and there is there is the the final section, the final movement of Symphony Number no. One, has the crisis theme, yeah. which is unbelievable, right? It's the theme that was happening under the drum solo, mm-hmm. and and it's in the same key, even same tempo. It's it's incredible, like where like that that is something that I would have loved to have an opportunity to ask David Bedford yeah. or Mike for that matter. Like if there, if and how that happened, yeah. that is just just kind of out of this world. This kind of, I really encourage everybody to f- try to find that. Um, so there's no recording it, of that. There's a recording, is yes, it? and it's you can find it on streaming services. It's um, it's it's fascinating, right? And 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 again, then everything kind of like builds with that drum solo, kind of reminiscent of uh, Armadon already there with the drums. Uh, you know, and then kind of explodes into this, into this um, almost, almost like an ambient groove of strummed acoustic guitar, very fast sixteenth notes, um, with then uh, a sort of like a, um, like one of that, like not not screaming that much at first, mm-hmm. kind of like melodies on top, right of the guitar. And with the bass, there, there's and like no bass guitar throughout this. Yeah. At the finale, just on the on the on the down on the one of every eight bars, it goes bad bad. The bass like bad bad, and four bars pass and a bit bad bad, and that's the only bass note there. It's like so cool, <laughs> and then it changes harmony, and and we have the last uh, four or eight bars of the composition. And and then we have the yeah the big chord at the end, and then we have the beautiful little outro with a dis- dissonant, yeah, really dissonant. I think finales um, work work based on expectations, and it's I think this one is plays with that again and makes it work. Um, to me, actually, in a way, the 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 finale's biggest finale, like the explosion, is already early, and then the return like it goes back into it and then the drums come in and it's it, it keeps building and it's but, a little bit it's a little bit like armor rock it's a little bit like armor rock but armor rock of course has this one and a half minute or maybe just a minute i don't know um big surge at the very end yes yeah yeah, yeah. i listened to that pro- just a little bit before and i almost had tears in my eyes again mm. uh, i was surprised mm. how much that still worked yes yeah 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 and so here he almost has uh, I don't know I feel I feel like it's more he stays in the mood again and um, and lets it float and I I like this the idea that you've already given us 
the um, the big moment, mm -hmm. and now we get to just enjoy being in the build-up and the expectation, because the expectation is very often more beautiful than the actual resolution. Yes, and and like the, like I said about like the dissonance of the outro, right? Mm -hmm. So because the the way and this this ties in with the space and with the with the room simulator here, where the I mean the pitches are F sharp A A B natural C natural F natural, mm -hmm. so really like the F sharp and the F natural kind of like really fighting, you know. But melodically, you could say it works. Like if you just play those notes in sequence. It works as a melody, but what happens here is with the room simulator, which sustains all the notes in the background. Yeah. So the reverb stays in the room, and you so you have that this drony, this droning dissonance. Yeah. Um, I love that because this so the track does not resolve, and then and this is also like why it makes sense to record to listen to it on on CD. Mm. Then it resolves with the first notes of Moonlight Shadow. Yeah. So the, re the there's no resolution at the end of the crisis, but Moonlight Shadow gives the <laughs> gives the resolve, and that's that's just also like in terms of uh, like a sort of like a a narrative, let's say, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. And it puts another dent into the um, reversal of the sides on the North American version. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't work at all. Um, I also really like the the like the, the sequencer line. I'm not quite sure if it's actually sequenced as such, or if it's played and then repeated. In the live versions, it's almost ex like verbatim. It's exactly the but same. It's played. It has to be played, and that's it's what played and with the delay. But it's with the delay. It's amazing so it's, to believe it's got to be yeah. played into a delay, um, you know, to get that effect. I, what, I, what is so different about this is, first of all, the length of the sequence, mm -hmm. and then that it constantly jumps between passages where it's rhythmical. And then it's melodic. That is really unusual. It's, I mean, great synthesizer lines, uh, sequencer lines, sorry, yeah. from Latendrum Beam have this quality, but it's usually much shorter. And this is yeah, such yeah. a long. It's long, and it has it has it has sections. Yeah. So it cha changes and changes tonality. You know, it's not like yeah. something that um, people were doing with sequences back in the day. But as we already said with um, with Mount Tidy, like on. On, on five months out, there was already a tendency to program longer, mm. longer phrases and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I'm, I'm, I, it must have been um, on the record. It's probably programmed. I, I just, was, but I don't know. Like, yeah. nobody knows. You didn't um, see him on that, on the tour, on any tour where he played that live. I, uh, well, I saw the '84 tour, yes. But that was that was when the Fairlight was. The centerpiece on stage, and basically they played to a backing track that was coming from the Fairlight. <coughs> so it was like some, even though I mean it was great to be there, but that that's maybe like my most uh, least favorite of his tours ever, the '84 tour, because it was basically them playing to a backing track. That's exactly exactly what Tangerine Dream did in the '80s as well. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't like that, and and as I've said, like the sound of the. Uh, of the Fairlight worked really well in the studio production mm -hmm. uh, because, like, if you massaged it in the mix, it sounded great. Yeah. But having it just like like dry, it sounds like a 1980, a 1996 sound card, uh, yeah. you know, general MIDI kind of sounds, kind of thing. And you know, there are there are um, bootlegs out there of just the uh, the Fairlight tracks of oh, the tour. Know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have that. So I have got that somewhere. The what I what I did notice is that the Fairlight he plays a lot more with it. Like he he plays more notes with it. Like in, even if it's in, in the background, and it's basically doing what usually like a, a held pad would do. Yeah, he plays more with it. So he creates the mood, but it's um, dynamic. It's it's moving. It's constantly moving. Yeah, it's That's more. Like, it's uh, it's an animated. It's an animated sequence, and again, like based on this hammering idea yeah. between notes, and because of the, the the delay treatment and the reverb treatment, and also the the interesting panning. Like I don't know how they did it, but maybe they recorded the delay or two delays on different tracks, and as they were playing back, they were 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 automating the panning of mm -hmm. the delays, and that's why you get this this really spacious kind of. Um, sound yeah. right um which i still think like on this record sounds really really cool it doesn't sound dated at all to me no quite contrary i think it has sort of a few like a futuristic yes utopian yes yes feel to it and kind of like kind of like fitting with the mood of the cover again yeah. right like very yeah. much so yes yeah and you know what's so beautiful about that that section too that there's mandolin in it and that mm. there's um, like I think I hear nylon string guitar, mm. like nylon string guitar in there, um, and and beautiful guitar tones on this record too. Like really, uh, yeah, sort of um, moving, sort of like moving forward from um, where it was before, going to like the sounds that, like then, um, really materialized with um, actually on, uh, believe it or not, on Earth Moving. When he had these like really filtered, like mm. dark kind of sounds with with lots of uh, um, pitch bending of the strings and 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 also like a whammy bar and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, you know, and and Glenn, he said in my conversation with him um, that some of the he also contributed a couple of of lines in Crisis. Um, yes, the, so yeah. the song part of Crisis. Not the solos, right? Uh, Not uh, he was doing solos on uh, Shadow on the Wall, and in particular in the in the extended version, mm -hmm. he has a, a solo, a real solo. The the solo in the single version is both Mike and and playing together. Mm -hmm. I think in harmony. Yeah. How did he remember the uh, the sessions? Um... Well, he was he was very fond of it. Um, I think like if people are interested, just just look for Marcus Reuter podcast yeah. and Glenn. There's part one and part two. Um, like he, it was like the way that he was um, recalling this was like not very structured, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but he was he was a um, a friend of um, Phil Spalding, who is not with us anymore. Like Phil Spalding would would have been a person really to talk about the eighty stuff. He he was such a lover of Mike's work mm. and. Um, as far as I know, there was sort of like an unfortunate event where they like lost contact then after Earth moving. Mm -hmm. So, um, but anyway, yeah, um, it's worth kind of like collecting this at some point. It would be so great to know more about how these records were made. Yeah, time's running out a bit on that. Time's though. running out. Like, okay, like I'm I, I'm going to see Simon um, on the on the cruise to the edge, Simon Phillips. Yeah. So maybe I can, if there is a chance to talk with them, I can ask him. Yeah, and then Taurus too. We haven't mentioned any, haven't mentioned that at all yet. Taurus three, yeah. 
yeah, Taurus 3 is sort of like the little brother of the other Taurus pieces, and it's not really that obvious. No. The connection is really not that obvious. And I like that. I like that that it's sort of hidden. And I mean, there's 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 um, people on YouTube who've put it together as a suite, and um, it's sort of the encore, maybe, if we can call it that. I don't know if there was mm -hmm. ever an idea for a, for a fourth part. Mm -hmm. um, right now, it feels sort of as, as an encore, which mm -hmm. I think it works as pretty great. Um, I remember when um, when he was on um, an MTV, yeah, um, in with Ray Cox, with Ray Cox, <laughs> they played it together. Um, that was a rare, like, really humorous um, moment. Yes. yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something about that piece, actually. Um, there, at, towards the end, there's a there's where there's a moment where it's sort of um, before the final climax. Is there sort of major and minor at the same time? It's really with the bass underneath. Maybe we should. We have probably have to listen to it. Uh, mm -hmm. um, but there was. Um, I. I mean. I. I. I can already tell you no. But then, what? What also is more pronounced in the five point one mix of this album, of this track, Taurus Three, is that it's actually based and it's on the on the album version. It's not that obvious. Mm -hmm. It's also based on the on the droning room simulator. There's one thick chord mm -hmm. that sits behind the whole track, mm. and in the uh, in the five point one version, I think it's extended. You can hear more of it at the front, and it's louder in general. Okay. And so you know it's a drone, and then every the piece is kind of like happening within that drone actually. So it's very, it's kind of experimental. Like if you listen to it like in the on its own, like you don't really yes understand. It's like oh, it's a little tune with with two sections and like a short bridge or something like that um but no it's sort of like can conceptually integrated into this this droning space of mm. of this of this technology and of the vibe of the of the again mood piece like i think we've really mm -hmm. hit the nail on the head with this <laughs> uh it's the same here it's like a mood piece and this this little folk song happens within a futuristic Droning space. Mm -hmm. It's not that obvious, uh, like I said, on the album version, but that's what it is. I, I really like listening to it on headphones. I don't generally like listening to music on headphones, but this one is great mm -hmm. because the drums are really crisp and snappy, and um, mm -hmm. and the guitars are just you hear the, all the resonances. Yes, it's it's. I was it's it's amazing that that he produced it himself with Simon. Yeah, with Simon. It's it's a is really like compared to. Um, Discovery then, which really, it's, you know, like this was still recorded in Tilehouse Studios, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and and then Mike moved to studio to like to Geneva or whatever, wherever it was in Switzerland uh, for Discovery. And so, so this was like sort of the ideal setup. And he had the experience already having produced a couple albums there. And then I think it, it all comes together on this record. Isn't the five point one of the title track also very different? Um, it's very different. It's, it's. Um, you could say you could say that it's, as if as if Mike wasn't really remembering, what mm -hmm. the original sounded like. So when he remixed it, it's it's very different. Like there are a couple of parts in there that you don't hear mm. in the original. Uh, and I think I think. Um, Whoever you know made the mix 
like like then probably with the engineer who is listed here, My, Nigel Luby. Uh, it's the only time I hear Nigel Luby uh, or is listed on. Is he mentioned as for the five point one? That's of course. No, not for the five point one. Oh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, the original mix. Yeah. But but like the original mix again is like massaged in a very strong, particular way, where like or, again like all the. Like there's, for example, there's like a, a an acoustic bass sample yeah. in it, mm. right? Which in the on the studio record sounds great because they managed to integrate it. But like if you hear it too dry, it yeah. sounds bad, you know. Yeah. So um, so and it kind of happens with the five point one version. But as as a, as a, like for somebody like me who likes to study. The songs, it's, mm. it's or the, the the compositions, it's great to hear like a different different take on it. Yeah. And like um, the other thing, uh, coming back to the banjo aspect, right? Shadow on the wall, like in the version that's on the record, you don't hear the banjo that well, but there is like what the unplugged mix on the deluxe edition, mm. where the banjo takes center, mm. is the centerpiece. It's cool, yeah, and really cool, and. Um, and again, like that's also where the guitar, the acoustic guitar, is played that hard. So it's sort of like Shadow on the Wall and Moonlight Shadow come from the end and Crisis. Those are the three songs, and well, actually, obviously, also Taurus Three. Sorry, it's yes. like, like it's so it's only in high places and a foreign affair that don't don't have any acoustic guitar played that way. Yeah. So there's there's another theme for you there. By the way, there's um, um, there's a, a very nice um, cover version of um, "In High Places" as a as a children's lullaby. It's on a on a on an album of um, song like variation, sort of tunes played for children to fall asleep to. And uh, oh, places one. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I've never heard that. And I think they that was really smart because it actually works. And it I think it if you think about it, it it has that mood sort of. It's this dreamy yes. world and. Um, so they really thought about it. There must have been someone who really liked the original. They didn't just cover anything. They didn't yeah. just put anything yeah. Yeah. To, um, in, in, uh, in this version, but they actually um, they saw and heard something in that piece that was actually there, mm -hmm. which I thought was really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, there's. I think we did, we did say quite a bit. I'm sure like we're, we're missing a lot of things again um, here. Like yeah, for example, I love the um, the guitar, the the arrangement of the guitars in the title track, mm. like the like three part harmony on the guitars and stuff. It's just beautiful. Like with how they um, color collaborated on that. Like I think that Ant Glenn, like you know, because they were sitting, mm. they were together in the studio, Mike, Ant Glenn, and Rick Fan. And so, like, if you're sitting together and you're playing, like Mike, Mike say maybe start shows a little melody and say, okay, let's find harmonies to this, and then they came up with these beautiful things. Um, I think that's another the really, really special mm -hmm. um, feature of this record, both in the first half of Crisis and the second half of Crisis, the song. I would assume that <clears throat> in a way, sort of different things came together that were happening at the same time. When they were two, so the the the, um, the sections which are not that like which are non tubular bells directly related, mm -hmm. those apparently came from from sound checking uh, during the tour and then mm -hmm. finding out sections which they all liked, 
And then I think he combined it with the reworkings in his mind of tubular bells, which he was constantly reworking on, on, on the live circuit. Yes. And then the incredible new opportunities of that electronic music offered. Yes. Um, mm. And so that he brought that together um, and it somehow fit, it somehow slotted together. Maybe because he was, it was constantly being played out um, while he was touring. Yeah. Yeah, you see, like there's, like I'm just reminded of um, because I was thinking, okay, maybe is there really anything on this that's not tubular bells inspired? And I, I guess, I guess you'll be right about that. But some of those guitar, yeah. like those six eight, the the shuffly parts, yeah. they that's also tubular bells already. I cannot believe they, that I didn't they, actually hear that when I first heard it. I had the hard <laughs> yeah. time, but but now I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and uh, and also there's the like the instrumental little instrumental coda of the song where Mike sings crisis crisis you know mm -hmm. and um and he also says I need you by my side there's a, because there's a crisis yeah that's also interesting because like wh who is you yeah that's like interesting but anyway um so there's this little instrumental coda and then it also took me a while to understand that it's actually like again like one of the very few or maybe the only instance of a nine eight bar in Mike's music, so it's nine. It's really cool. It's yeah. like <laughs> it's, it's special. Like so, so to discover these 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 little things, yeah. And then the Watcher and the Tower, for example, like that that piece. Like where does that come from? And then there there is like this this little dissonant, which goes on on the which you would say okay maybe it was an accident in the studio or something but then no they played exactly like that live with those mm. wrong notes and it's it's so cool just as an aside as you mentioned that there's a light in the tower on in the very first i yeah. actually i i misunderstood the lyrics or maybe I didn't as the watcher in the tower yes i always thought it was the watcher in the tower mm -hmm. which yes and and it, I, I still think it's uh it's confusing because People are not. I think it's and. Well, it says in the, in the lyrics it says and. Yeah. But I but I hear him in. Yeah. And maybe the light in there suggests yes. someone is looking back at the watcher on the other side. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's um, a nice thought maybe to um, conclude. Um, yes. As you said, I agree. It's probably there's more in there, and um, and I I I sometimes I. I I, I just fall into the album and um, I find it harder for this to reflect on it because I just fall into it and uh, mm -hmm. um, lose myself, which I really don't have with that much music. I, um, mm -hmm. So I like, I like the fact that maybe uh, even though the songs are, it's, it's so, it's, it has more of a song structure, it's still inexplicable. It's, it remains, it retains its mystery. For me, certainly. For me, really, it really does. In a in a way, like this, it's so funny. Like this reverberate space, mm. almost that opens the record, is kind of kind of like embracing the whole thing. Yeah, it's like a bracket. Yeah, and even even shadow on the wall. Yeah, right. Like even though that's the kind of like so dry. And, and kind of over the top with the mic, actual mic, mic preamp distorting on the vocal and uh, like the thing that people hate about it. I think it's just, 
I mean, how how cool do you have to be as an artist to also like have have a singer define your song mm. so much? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and actually, of course, the the room simulator it's 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 mentioned in the instruments among the instruments. Yes, that's, exactly. that's enough. Of yes, yes, you're right. How many albums are you going to find where you have uh, mention of the reverb um, unit used as, in a as the instrument? Yes, exactly. It's not very, uh, yes, common. yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess that this sort of like for me concludes um, like it's the first 10 years, but it's also mm. sort of like the first really uh, yeah. um, part of the of Mike's career. Yeah, I certainly thought about the, the fact that um, I didn't know, as you mentioned in the last one, that um, he stopped touring, but it seems to fit because as he was um, as the success of Moonlight Shadow brought him into towards a more pop-oriented mm. um, audience, and he was playing to bigger halls, or he had been playing to bigger halls, and he was um, in Germany. He was until 1989 one of the biggest um, album um, artists yes. around. Mm. Um, he was now also um, moving into um, popular and like mainstream media. Yes, and there are plenty. Like one of the reasons I think that we know so little about creatively about this period is that he probably doesn't really like thinking back about it to, uh, to it all that much, or at least mm -hmm. in the book it seems that way. Mm -hmm. And the interviews are so bad. Yes, um, there's okay. one I don't know if you've seen it about from Formula Formula Eins, which was Germany's big popular music television program mm -hmm. in public uh, television, and um, and the guy interviews him, and he actually doesn't. It's almost like he doesn't know the artist. Like he had to yeah. ask, "How much? This this is now your uh, album number? Which is this?" Yeah. And um, yeah. and he's completely oblivious to to the career. Yes. And um, and so I think um, public perception must have been different of him, and maybe his own perception of his work. And so I think. Um, that must have had an influence on on the music that's been created, with discovery being purely song oriented. Um, Islands has a very different style and so forth. I think it's, mm -hmm. as you said, it, it does. There is a cutoff, even though obviously a lot. I mean, he, he doesn't completely change, but there's a transition. There's yes, like yes. And for me, Discovery and Islands are sort of like almost standalone albums. Yeah. Where Discovery connects to Crisis quite a bit, yes, because of uh, well, we'll we'll talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tobias, for another inspiring conversation. And yes, bye-bye. See you soon. See you soon.